I'm John DiLibretto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today I've got another icon of Echoes, the ambient guitar duo, Hammock. Of the 30 icons of Echoes, they are among only four who began recording in the 21st century. They are the 28th icons. I've got an extended feature on them. We're also going to hear icons of a different sort with the duo, Sunroof. It includes producer and founder of Mute Records, Daniel Miller, and producer and engineer, Gareth Jones. There might not be electronic pop without these two, who include Depeche Mode, Moby, and John Fox on their resumes. But that might not prepare you for the free-form, improvised, modular, electronic improvisations they bring us as Sunroof. Before we get there, I want to tell you about a new album from the Spotted Peccary label, who have brought us great music for over 25 years. One of the latest is a deep, ambient recording by Bart Hawkins. It's called Vision of Eden. It's a modular electronic journey to the dawn of creation. No real beats or melodies, just unfolding, richly textured ambient landscapes. Visions of Eden by Bart Hawkins is available from Amazon, iTunes, Bandcamp, and other retailers. And now, let's wire up the patch cords and flip the switch for Sunroof. Depeche Mode and Mute Records are two of the biggest names in electronic pop music. Early Mute artists included Erasure, Fad Gadget, Yazoo, and later on, Moby. But the biggest of them all has been Depeche Mode, who have defined electronic pop. Two men responsible for a lot of that music are Mute founder Daniel Miller and producer and engineer Gareth Jones. But recording as Sunroof, they are making a sound that is not pop at all. Daniel Miller. Well, I think the relationship between anything that I do, whether it was 42 years ago or now, for me, what's interesting and what excites me is exploring electronic music, I think, is the thing that links everything. You know, my love of it, the inspiration it gives me, you know, the respect I have for other people who, you know, came before me and after me. It's all about that, really, because that makes sense.
I'm speaking with Daniel Miller and Gareth Jones separately. Gareth is in Shoreditch in England with a studio that looks like a 60s throwback. The walls are orange and it's adorned with tapestries. He wears a colorfully embroidered skull cap and behind him is a jumble of modular synthesizers, patch baits, electronic processors, and a vintage Revox A77 reel-to-reel deck. Well, my studio is a very brightly colored. I mean, I call it, let's call it a shed. It's kind of a small space, you know. It's very brightly colored, and I guess it reflects my love of the psychedelic and my whole hippie aesthetic that I grew out of many, many decades ago, you know. Daniel Miller is in his home studio in Berlin. Well, his is very orange and nice and colorful. Mine, this is really just a, a bit of space in my flat where I live with my wife. It's just like a little open area where my modular sits. But Daniel's studio Mute in London looks like mission control from a 60s sci-fi film, all white and clean surfaces. These are two very different men. While Gareth looks like a hippie, Daniel, bald and with thick black room glasses, looks like a corporate magnate. It's just that he's sitting in front of a wall-sized modular synthesizer system. Gareth Jones and Daniel Miller were in the vanguard of electronic pop and were responsible for some of the first electro-pop albums to emerge out of punk. While everyone in England was plugging in guitars in 1978, Daniel plugged in synthesizers as the normal. TBOD, TBOD, TBOD. One of the things about the normal single that I th- was important for me, apart from the actual music and everything else, do you remember this? It came out in 1978, so it came out in the kind of post-punk era. And punk was something that really inspired me in, in so many different ways. It, more the uh, spirit of it than the actual music, although I love some punk rock music. But punk rock music it was kind of fizzled out quite quickly in terms of being relevant, I think. But the punk spirit lived on. and. I was very caught up in that spirit, and that was the spirit in which I made that record. But, of course, it was electronic, which was something the punks hated. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. Leatherette. Breaking glass in the underpass. See the breaking glass. This is from the normal single, Warm Leatherette. It has spawned at least 70 cover versions, most famously by Grace Jones. Gareth Jones, no relation, came to electronic music with Metamatic, the solo debut of John Fox, the singer from Ultravox. Not a lot like it, but there is a connection to the normal warm leatherette for me aesthetically somehow north london kind of sound diy electronics in a way he had a brilliant and i I didn't get this at the time but he had a brilliant manifesto and conceptual idea he wanted to make a minimal record and you know what he did he simply took a minimal toolkit which is how i met him i was working in a tiny little eight track studio really bit scummy but it was legendary studio called pathway but it was quite close to his apartment. He came in with one little drum machine, one Art Odyssey synth, one flanger, 
one ARP sequencer and one Elka string machine. So it really was quite a limited toolkit. They've been working together for over 40 years, mostly as producers and engineers, but in 1994, in the process of organizing Daniel's analog synthesizer collection, they started improvising. They were 45 minute long jam sessions because they were limited by the length of an ADAT tape. They were fun to do. I don't think they're, from a listener's point of view, I think I'm not sure how engaging they are because we weren't making it for a listener. Other than posting these 45-minute improvs on SoundCloud as the Abbey Street Sessions by Genius Jones, nothing came of this work. But the idea was planted, and a quarter century later, they got back together with more purpose as Sunroof. Despite their deep connections to electronic pop, Sunroof harkens to an earlier sound, earlier than electronic pop, earlier than German electronic space music, earlier than Wendy Carlos's Switched on Bach. I don't think it was that conscious, but if that's how you hear it, I mean, that's a compliment, by the way. <laughs> and Because um, I love those, I love those early electronic experiments or music you know whether it's bbc radiophonic workshop or stockhausen or you know they were all huge influences on me oh man uh pierre schaefer uh, stockhausen of course pierre Henri, the bbc radiophonic workshop with uh, delia derbyshire and all her amazing work and even joe meek as an early independent producer who built some kind of otherworldly electronic sounds into his song productions. Those are seminal influences on all kinds of electronic music, from Kanye West to Jean-Michel Jarre, but it's not the actual sound you usually hear today. But Sunroof went there. Daniel and Gareth got together in each other's studios, sometimes each other's kitchens, and started creating the sound of Sunroof. We wanted to make a live performance. We recorded almost completely without any overdubs. There's, I think, one overdub on one track, an extra bass line on one track. And we recorded uh, straight to a four-track or stereo, so there was no mixing after the event. So all these were kind of key corners of our manifesto. So we turn up with blank Eurorack rigs, nothing plugged in. That was also part of the manifesto. No one came with a patch already or a sequence of sounds running. So we turn up with blank uh, Eurorack modular cases, traveling cases, and 
we never spoke about the music, as I said, and then we would start to put a patch together. And after perhaps uh, 45 minutes or an hour, when we felt we had something, we would press record. And there were no keyboards. No keyboards. No, everything played from the sequences embedded in the Eurorack systems. No, no, we, I personally, I don't really have a keyboard. Well, I have a couple of very tiny keyboards, but they're not plugged in. I don't use them in my studio. I never use a keyboard. Uh, well, I, well, I haven't used a keyboard for years. Why? The reason is that it immediately ties you to a scale, a conventional scale. And in modular, that scale, for me, is restricting. And for me, there's no relationship between what I'm doing on my modular system and working in, uh, with kind of conventional tools. based purely in improvisation, hence the title of the album, Electronic Music Improvisations, Volume 1. Well, I think when you're working with modular, which is what they were doing and what we're doing, it's very difficult to do anything other than improvise. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you can make some kind of a plan, vague plan, but in the end you're always improvising because it's such a fluid system and to try and do a structured pop song as an extreme opposite example on a modular live i mean you could do it but why would you do it you know what's the what's the point so much of making these improvisations was rooted in us listening to each other you know it's very deep listening i suppose you know there's no talking we never talked about the tracks we built the sounds and we started listening to each other and at times in the improvisation it wasn't clear who was making which noise and certainly months after the event, neither of us would be certain of who's making what, apart from the odd noise that we would recognise. Sunroof is clearly not about pop sensibilities. It's really about the joy of sound. So it's the joy of sound, and for us... There's a lot of rhythm and melody in there as well, but there's no sense of sonata form or chorus coming back or anything like that. It's the joy of a journey with sound. Yeah, I think that's quite a nice little quote, John. Thank you. I think I'll use that. Gareth Jones has a couple of other projects out, including New Salfa and Electrogenetic. Electronic Music Improvisations Volume 1 by Sunroof is out now on Parallel Series. I'll have a link for Electronic Improvisations Volume 1 by Sunroof in the posting for this podcast. And now, the 27th Icons of Echoes, Hammock. Hammock is the Nashville-based duo of Mark Bird and Andrew Thompson, and they have become leading lights in the world of post-rock. 
Between 2005 and 2010, they released a quartet of recordings that defined a sound that was part shoegaze, part ambient and part progressive rock. But since then, they've been exploring a darker, less rhythm-oriented sound on albums that contemplated life and death. This music lives on the borders of ambient guitar and ambient chamber music and explores a darker, more introspective terrain. Hammock are the 27th icons of Echoes. beats, rapid-fire sequences, and songs devolving into little more than hooks, Hammock takes a deeper, darker, more textured approach with sheets of sound shifting beneath each other like tectonic plates, but with a hint of melody and the feel of spirits rising toward the heavens. But however abstract the music gets, Hammock are always writing from a place of emotion and deep, sometimes existential concerns. Hammock has always been a cathartic endeavor for both of us, and uh, I think that carries a lot of the spiritual element for us as well. It, it just, we're able to purge a lot of demons through this music. There are times when we're writing a piece, I will picture someone in my life that I've either lost or that I'm concerned about or that I'm sad I've lost connection with, and I'll picture them in my head and kind of play in, in an emotive way that uh, evokes that sense of of loss, and I and I'm thinking of particular people when I'm actually writing the piece or playing something. So I think that that in some weird way that comes through also. That's Andrew Thompson and Mark Bird, and they have come up with a sound that has found fans and people as diverse as Iceland Sigaros and the comedian Ricky Gervais. He used their music all over his poignant comedy series Afterlife. It's music that definitely creates a mood. created a music that drew from an Americana spirit and was inspired by their homes in Nashville. Andrew and I are deeply influenced by growing up in the South as a connection that we have, not just the, the landscape of the, of the South, but everything. Like when you grow up in a small town, you know, everybody who's passed away, you know, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, you know what's going on with uh, almost everyone. And uh, you can't help but carry that with you and be influenced by that, the sounds and the sights and the landscape. We definitely don't go for it consciously. I think it's just, it's so far ingrained. We really sometimes have to try <laughs> for it not to come out.
You won't find it in their bio materials anymore, but both musicians were raised in Christian fundamentalist families. Mark Bird. I was raised in that kind of thing of, like, I had to burn my rock records. I had to burn my comic books, and that's bad, you know, but yet I loved music. My mom would take me to, you know, like a Christian bookstore, and I would buy a cassette, and those cassettes had screws in them, and so what I would do is I would take the screws out of the Christian tapes and put replace the reels with like something that I wanted to actually listen to and so when my mom would come in and ask me what I was listening to I could eject the tape and give it to her and it would say you know whatever Petra or something on it and uh but really it was probably you know like the cure or something so so or or Maiden to be honest or or, or Iron Maiden yeah (laughs) we kind of skipped around through a bunch of different churches I mean it uh it's at some points it was pretty straight ahead and at other points it was it was people flopping around on the ground and <laughs> speaking in tongues and welcome to the south Mark Bird used to spend most days sitting in rooms with other writers and churning out songs for the country and Christian market of all creation there's a big song, it was a gospel song that I wrote called God of Wonders. Um, I wrote it with a friend. It was a co-write. Um, I don't know, it's been on three space shuttle missions and been played all over the world, so. God of wonders beyond all galaxy, you are holy, holy. You may not have heard this song, but Spotify lists no fewer than 53 different versions. But that's not where Mark Bird's heart resided. It's like, it's like a job. <laughs> it's totally a job. It, it was kind of like Hammock started as an outlet to be able to come over to Andrews and pour out stuff that was bubbling inside. Mark Bird and Andrew Thompson met in the group common children. They were labeled as a Christian rock band, but shared more of a lineage with moody alternative groups like Slow Dive and the Cocteau Twins. Bird says the seeds of Hammock were planted in common children's last album, The In-Between Time. I was a lead singer and the primary songwriter, and uh, I always brought the moodiness, the dreaminess, and all that to it. And it was a little frustrating to the drummer sometimes because he was always like, man, can you just play a regular chord, you know? And But uh, the in-between time, it was kind of like, okay, we're going full blast into the more shoegazy um, kind of sound, more ambient type of sound. Mark Bird was listening to everything from Wyndham Hill Records to Arvo Parrot with a deep dose of ambient music. I've always been a fan of Brian Eno and I've always been a fan of alternate tunings and that was my Michael Hedges, William Ackerman kind of influence. And um, I don't know what it was except that I started coming over to Andrew's house and um, just 
wanted to get out of my mind really kind of and, and uh, uh, do more dreamy type music and then once things started rolling you know uh, it turned into a total project which with its own unique sound Hammock tapped into a more introspective and spiritual side of Burden Thompson. Their first album was called Kenotic. Kenotic kind of comes from this word kenosis, which refers to emptiness. Um, and I've always been kind of drawn to the concept of emptiness. Um, on Kenotic, it, it felt more like we were more out of the way and music was kind of happening um, very naturally and organic. And that's kind of a, the concept of emptiness, which is getting out of the way. Much of Hammock's early music spoke to a hopeful yearning and melancholy realized in titles like Chasing After Shadows, Living With The Ghosts, and Raising Your Voice, Trying To Stop An Echo. Raising Your Voice, Trying To Stop An Echo comes from a Zen koan. It talks about when you're trying to fight against who you really are, it's like uh, raising your voice, trying to stop an echo. Much of the album has a haunting poignancy and yearning about it, and inspiration comes from the kind of life event that has shaped much of their music. It's definitely a bittersweet record, I think. Um, I had uh, a friend who um, was a professor at a, at a college who had taken me under his wing at one point and was really a, a cool guy, and, and um, he... Uh, went to Walmart and bought a shotgun and shot himself. And so there's a lot of, of dealing with um, that whole subject on this record. Despite the tragic influences on the album, it captures a sound that ambient pioneer Brian Eno once characterized as brave and resigned. Andrew Thompson. Yeah, it's there's that kind of fine line that we, I think just both of us naturally slide into where between melancholy and, and beauty in the music.
That brave and resigned modality would turn darker in Hammock's later years as tragedy and turmoil influenced albums like Departure Songs. Looking at the cover with its ghostly angelic figure on a dark shrouded landscape, listening to the deep layered music and the blurred and muffled lyrics of loss, you might wonder if you're supposed to be depressed when you hear it. <laughs> That's up to you. <laughs> uh, it, it's definitely a, a, a big record, and the themes are big, too. It's not just a big sound. Um, mine and my wife's house was flooded in 2010, and, um, and we made, shortly after that, an EP called Longest Year, and that was kind of just dealing with that year because my stepfather died suddenly that year. A friend of ours who uh, did some orchestration um, died and Longest Year was just kind of dealing with the whole thing. And then Departure Songs is more of an unpacking of the realities of, you know, impermanence and change. So it's definitely got that theme running through it. But I also think that it has a redemptive quality, too, in the sense that it's our way of dealing with the darkness is creating some beauty out of it. feel distant from their Christian upbringing now, embracing a more universalist approach to the spirit. But Bird admits there's still some Christianity in there. I'll be honest with the way that it's it's coming back in my life is because Andrew and I both kind of got into Buddhism and mindfulness and, and, and meditation. And um, it's in returning with that kind of mindset and discovering the mystics, which I've always been aware of, uh, that it's it's like I'm seeing it again for the first time from a different angle. So in that regard, I would say, for me, yes. Uh, for Andrew, uh, probably not. <laughs> probably, yeah, probably not. That spiritual sensibility emerges on their album, Mysterium. And once again, I don't think that, that you would have a title like Numinous on this record if it weren't for the fact that uh, we still have that sense of the sacred. With Silencia, Hammock has decided to take a pause, something actually implied by the title. And like all their music, it leaves you with a sense of expansive awe, like the universe is parting before you. If you did have uh, one word to sum up Hammock's music and what it made you feel, I would hope it would make you sense mystery and uh, mysterious. And, and that's definitely more of the spiritual aspect um, I think that Hammock's trying to capture.
Hamagar, a true 21st century band, and of the 30 icons, they are among only four who began their work in this millennium. Hammock are the 27th icons of Echoes. Amic has been one of the joys of doing Echoes over the last two decades. Great musicians and great guys. I hope they aren't silencia too long. On the posting for this podcast, I've got links to my reviews of their six, yes, six CD of the month picks. And up on the Echoes website, I've got their live Echoes performance from 2008 streaming. That's pretty rare since they haven't played live very much. Next week, I've got another icon of Echoes, guitarist Will Ackerman, the founder of Wyndham Hill Records. He's the 28th icon of Echoes. Also, check out the Echoes website and show this coming Monday, June 28th. I'll have the best of Echoes 2021 so far, our 25 favorite albums from the last six months. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes podcast from PRX. See you next week tonight on the radio somewhere in the country or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want.